I was studying, preparing my message on Acts chapter 12, God just kind of laid on my heart a topic that I think we need to kind of clarify before we move into Acts 12, so you're going to have to wait another week for Elvis. Uh, I'm still trying to find him anyway, so, but anyways, uh, yeah. So last week in Acts chapter 11, we noticed that um, God is, again, moving and pushing forward uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are being saved, and, and God's doing the miraculous, and now all of a sudden people um, who were uh, uh, Greek-speaking Gentiles are being saved by the hundreds, and so, so much so that the, uh, the early church sent Barnabas uh, to go and to check it out, and Barnabas was so overwhelmed by the number of people coming to faith in Christ that he went and got uh, Saul. And there they, for a year, taught these new believers. And one of the things that uh, Barnabas taught them was he encouraged them to persevere in this newfound faith because uh, walking with Jesus is not always easy. Uh, it is hard, it is difficult at times, and so you need to persevere. And sometimes it's just, you know, you have to gut it out at times with the Holy Spirit just moving you forward. So we, we looked at that uh, on the topic of the mission of the church. We're unified around a mission. And so we don't have to un figure out what the mission is. The mission is go and make disciples is what Jesus gave us. So as you're going, uh, make disciples. It doesn't mean that you slice God up in a pie where I have God here and there's a slice for uh, church and there's a slice for home and there's a slice for work. And No, Jesus is to be at the center of our lives and we are to be surrendered to him as Lord of our lives. And then as we are going, as God is moving through wherever lives in our family, and where you work, where, where you, um, you know, go to school, wherever it is, you, you are making disciples. You're letting God use you through the power of the Holy Spirit to help others to see Jesus in you. And so our message, our message, we don't have to wonder about the message. The message is the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation is the word, Greek word sozo, which means to save, heal, and deliver. And um, so how do, how, what's the method by which we take the gospel into the world and make disciples? It is through God's giftedness to you. you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he has given you at least one spiritual gift, if not multiple spiritual gifts, and talents and abilities. And so all this culminates together in order for us to be used effectively uh, by the Holy Spirit in order to make disciples the commission that Jesus has given to us. That is our, our mission. Now, what I want to talk about is the pushback. Because anytime you're moving forward the gospel, Satan is not going to stand by idly and do nothing, all right? He's not going to throw up his hands and say, oh, Greg's out there sharing the gospel. He, you know, I, I'm just going to have to sit idly by. No, he's always going to give you pushback, and there's multiple different ways he can do that. But one of the ways that I see and I've experienced and I hear people say all the time is that when, when Satan wants to give you pushback, he, he just interjects thoughts in their minds. And one of the phrases that we hear all the time now is, well, you know what, um, I've been around church people, and I've seen the way they act, and you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. How many have ever heard that one? Somebody called you a hypocrite. Well, the church is filled with hypocrites, therefore I, I'm really not interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in anything about the church or anything about uh, what you may have to say to me. And so uh, often uh, we, you know, they may have a legitimate complaint. Okay, so I know that when I got saved, you know, I came out of a very, you know, I, a party life, and shortly after I was saved, uh, not much had changed in my life. You know, I knew Jesus had forgiven me my sins, but I, it wasn't like, you know, God flipped a, a book, you know, from one page to the next, and my life was like, you know, uh, okay, here's all my, 
my bad habits and, and things that I was doing, and then all of a sudden, boom, uh, now I wasn't doing that anymore, okay? So a part of the process of growing in our faith in Christ and God transforming our lives, it's a lifelong process. So I went to a party, and I was still doing the same old things that all my lost friends were doing, and so finally one girl come up to me, she says, hey, I thought you go, you, you go to church now, and I said, yes, I do, and she goes, well, what are you doing here? Uh, she goes, this is the whole problem with church is you guys, uh, you, you guys make it real convenient for yourselves. You just do whatever you want all week long, then you get to go to church and just kind of unload your guilt and shame before God and, and God forgives you. How convenient is that? And so really there are some times where, where it is legitimate. And so in 2007, George Barna asked non-Christian people why they reject Christianity. Here are the top three reasons. The, first, the top reason, number one reason, is because uh, they said that we are anti-homosexual. The second top reason was because the church is judgmental, and the third was because the church is full of hypocrites. There's a, most reasons believers are about three questions away from their worldview toppling. <laughs> if people press you, and they'll say, well, you, you say, well, we're not hypocritical. Well, well, yes, you are, and let me give you the reasons why I think you are. And we're like, well, well but, but, but that's not fair, you know, that's... Why do you do that? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. So I don't even believe the Bible. So what are you going to tell me now? So really, we don't have much of an answer to give them, by and large, when they come up with that, that um, pushback. And uh, we, we kind of like topple and just like give up. So what I want to do is I want to, ta- I want to tackle that topic How do you answer someone when they say, you know what, the reason I want nothing to do with your Jesus is because, look, I tried church once, and I, you know, I went, and I got judged, and I got misused, and I got abused, and, and all these things happened to me, and you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites, or maybe they don't even have a personal story, but they've heard other people's stories, and so they've concluded that all Christians are basically alike. That we're all just hypocrites, and we all just want to judge people and condemn people and, you know, hope that God comes and, and just kind of swoops them up and destroys them. And so if that weren't bad enough, if you watch talk shows or any kind of talk shows, uh, secular talk say that because they can't. That in addition to, but what they will say, well, well, you know, if you really look at the church history, uh, the reason why religion is really um, is, is not good for society is because go back to the Crusades and go back to the Inquisitions and go back to the Salem witch hunts and they always pull out those, those cards from past history in order to prop up their belief system that there, there is no God and if there is a God, he, he, he's not worthy of being followed. And so uh, we are the church, right? And we believe that God is the solution to humanity's problem. So how you sin, but many people think that God's the problem. Religion is the problem. That's, I mean, think about all the people who have died in the name of religion over history. So what I want to do is I want to face this with truth, because when it comes to truth, here's the first fill on your outline, what's real always beats what you feel, all right? A lot of us live in a very feeling kind of generation. I don't feel that's right. I don't feel that could be accurate. I don't feel like it's, you know, going to work. I don't feel like eating. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like going to school. I don't feel like going to work. And uh, so if we're not careful, feelings begin to govern our lives, and so for some people, they're pushing back on Christianity uh, because they just don't feel like that can be right. 
So um, instead of just basing our um, assumptions on feelings, I want us to kind of look at some factual things that are going to help us address this issue. Because what is real always beats how we feel. Uh, you may feel like uh, that you want to go 40 miles an hour over the speed limit in that curve only to find out that 40 miles an hour over the speed limit is going to help you kiss the guardrail on your way around. So it may have felt good uh, you know, at first, but then all of a sudden you, you find yourself in a wreck, right? So um, you may have felt like treating her the wrong way because you thought she would never break up with you, but in the end she did. So uh, I think that truth is your friend. And uh, many think that faith is only what you feel. No, there are some real things that you can drill down on when it comes to the problem of hypocrisy. So, um, yeah, so let me just start with this question. Does the church have problems? And I'm not just talking our church, I'm talking all churches. Does the church in general have problems? Absolutely we do, okay? Uh, you can look back to the early church. Did they have problems back then? Absolutely they did. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter 15, they're going to have a whole council on some problems they're dealing with, and, and it's not going to be pretty uh, until they come to some conclusions. And many of you, again, you don't need to go to someone else's story because you have your own story. People, there have been people who trusted leaders in churches, and they were abused, uh, whether physically or sexually in other ways. And, and so um, the church has problems. And if there is a church that has let you down, uh, I want to apologize. If it's this church that ever let you down, I apologize. I, I just want to apologize up front that because the church is not made up of perfect people, there are always going to be problems. Let me ask you, is there anywhere you go in life where there are not problems? Home, you have problems in your workplace, you have problems filled, you know, filled, you have problems in your home, you have problems everywhere that we go. So let me just address two reasons why um, the church has been viewed as hypocritical, judgmental, and mean-spirited. And the first one is simply this. What, what people fail to understand is that the church is filled with people who aren't actually Christians. Jesus talked about this a lot, about the wheat and the tares, the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the believers and unbelievers would grow up, you know, grow together in the same broad, but when he came and he separated the, the trees to paradise, and that's why he said that he did. Uh, Jesus talked in uh, Matthew chapter 7, there would be false leaders in the world that would lead people astray into false doctrines and false behaviors. So there are all kinds. My point is the atrocities done in the name of Christianity are often not done because of the teachings of Christianity. The, you know, the, the teachings aren't bad, but because some people who claim to follow Christ don't actually know him or follow him, and therefore they act in, under the banner of being a Christian when in fact they are not. You know, the Bible says that if we're walking in the Spirit, that we will produce what? The fruit of the Spirit. That, that is a characteristic. So the Holy Spirit in me is for my benefit. The Holy Spirit upon me is for your benefit. And so the Holy Spirit working in me produces the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is not for me, it's for you, right? So that you are... Through me, you are experiencing God's love and joy and peace and patience, and so it, it is, we are fruit bearers, but not everyone who claims to be a believer is actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but spend more time walking in the desires of the flesh, as Paul contrasted that in the book of Galatians. And so when you have to ask the question, uh, whenever people you know, say, well, this, that, or the other, what did Jesus teach? How did Jesus live? 
How did he teach us to live? If you look at the Beatitudes, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, which his Sermon on the Mount is Jesus was laying down the principles by which kingdom people are to live their lives. And so a part of that was blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, and, and all of these kinds of things uh, that he says that this, this should be characteristic, these attitudes ought to be characteristic of our lives so they get fleshed out in our everyday living. So some people say, well, uh, forget the personal story. Let's go historically. Let's go back to this thing about the Crusades. Let's go to this thing about the Inquisitions. Let's go back to this thing about, for example, witch hunts. About, if you hear a lot of facts thrown out, witch hunts, there are about 40,000 to 60,000 witches that lost their life. Eh, wrong. If you actually look at the facts, there were 25. So I'm going to talk about the Crusades, Inquisitions, all those things done under the banner of Christianity. If you were to take all of the, the loss of time, now that's a lot of people, and I get that and I understand that. Things that were done in the name of Christianity, but it doesn't mean that it had God's approval strapped to it. For example, Catholicism were not as a religious institution held great, and so Europe would wage wars under the Catholic banner, and because of this, people concluded that the Crusades were an example of Christianity trying to expand itself by they were not battles that were religious ones. Or take the Roman Empire. When Constantine in the 4th century became a believer, he claimed, okay, now the Roman Empire is Christian, Rome, Christianity, and so Rome continued to do what Rome wants to do and, and to push her borders and boundaries as far across the world as she could using war and own like kingdom. And so they hijacked Christianity banner in order to expand their borders. Jesus had nothing to do with those things. They were not, is that if you're really going to look at things of tree, you're going to tag that onto Christianity. Okay, tag it on Christianity, but as horrible as it would be, they were not good in the name of Jesus as he taught them. Jesus, that was not his teaching. And so we just kind of got strapped with that. But as bad as that is, so atheism come along like Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, who will say things like, you know, you got to get rid of Christianity. It's so bad. It's so responsible for so much plight in our society. If we just get rid of it for a moment. No society now has been, you know, now society, there's pockets in society trying to get rid of religion and so on. And the enlightenment. So they tried to do that. So let's just fast forward to the 19th and 20th century when you have countries that became purely atheist regimes killed over 100 million people in less than 100 years. All right, so you have like Russia and Stalin and you have like under an atheistic regime or Adolf Hitler who believed he was his own God. Certainly Christians killing 200,000 people under that banner over a 500 year period of time is not what we want Christianity branded as. It wasn't fulfilling the teachings of Jesus but it certainly is, pales in comparison to the loss of 100 million people over a 100-year span of time uh, that atheist regimes put forth. So what is going on? Again, Jesus taught us to live a completely different way. And so when people want to push back and say the church is filled with hypocrisy and you guys are responsible for millions and millions of people's death and this, that, and the other, I realize that 200,000 loss of life is way more than should ever be tacked on to us. Live is not how he taught us to be representatives of his kingdom. And so here's the tension. And it's a tension that every single person has to live with. 
person. I don't care if you're saved, not saved, a follower of Christ, not a follower of Christ. Every single person has to deal with this tension. And it is the tension between what is ideal and what is real. What is ideal and what is real. There is a gap there. All right, so this is important to understand. You, you run into this every day. You have your ideal life, right? You have your ideal job. You have your ideal family. You have your ideal marriage. Like some of you got married. You said, you know what? I, I married the ideal guy, and I'm going to have the ideal marriage and looking for a new deal, right? So uh, because there's a difference between what is ideal and what is real. Uh, you thought when you had kids, you know, I'm going to be the ideal parent, and my kids are going to be so good, and, and they're never going to do anything wrong, and they're going to be so smart, and they're never going to lie to me, and they're never going to do this, and we just kind of list that off in our head. Listen, I had all those ideals in my head before I had kids because, you know, before I had kids, I had all kinds of philosophies about parenting, and then I had children, and then I lost all my philosophies. And realize they're not the ideal, right? So you find out very quickly, those of you who have little boys, that when they're, get, you know, when they're able to stand and pee, they're going to pee everywhere except in the toilet, right? All over the bathroom floor. It's just what we do, okay? It's just it's kind of ingrained into to us. Uh, you thought, you, you know, I thought my, my little granddaughter, you know, she's like having this two-year-old meltdown right in the middle of the store, and she's crying, and she's throwing herself. You know why she's in there and throwing herself on the floor and in the tantrum? Grocery basket. He, she doesn't want him in there with her. And people are coming by, can I help you? Is there something wrong? Can something? We even have the ideal for our we, we have, don't we? We have an ideal of what we should be like and how we should behave and how we should, we should act and, and all the things that, you know, that we want to accomplish and all the things that we want to see happen in our lives. And then there's the real us. There's the I will put out there the ideal them on Facebook and then two months later they're committing suicide. Why? Because it's a tension that every single person has to, to live with. Some people leave, you know, leave uh, the idea, the, you know, they, they're looking for the ideal church. And then they find out the church has problems. And then they're looking for another ideal church. And then in five years, they've been in five different churches. You have uh, your ideal husband with his six-pack. And you have your real husband with his keg. <laughs> and self-awareness. You understand very quickly that the ideal us, we can't live up to that. Now, when you got saved, remember what we said last week, that what God wanted to do was to reverse everything that sin had done to you. Right? So you came into the world, you were spiritually dead. Your soul, your mind, will, and emotions is, is affected by sin. It creates problems. It creates things like envy and jealousy and hatred and anger and envy and strife, all kinds of things. And then your body, oh, your body, like it's wasting, so it, has, it becomes sick. It, it, I mean, the older you get, you know, you, you go to bed at night and you get up the next day, that, why is my hip sore? I don't understand why I can't walk today. I, I, so all these things are happening. All these, so when Jesus came into your life, what God wants to do, what's the immediately he did, he breathed into you the breath of life, the spirit of God, so he took your dead spirit and made you spiritually alive. You're hosting literally the presence of Christ in you. And then he wants to begin transforming your soul, right? So your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions. And the Bible talks a lot about renewing the mind so that where Satan has built these mental strongholds that are always based on lies and their coping mechanisms to deal with our brokenness. And so we, we, 
that we have these lives that are going to bring fulfillment in our lives and contentment and whatever it is that we're looking for, only to find out that it doesn't work. And so then we move on to the next thing and then move on to the stronghold. Satan is erected in your thought processes. And I want to take the lies down and build your thought process around some of what you can experience in this lifetime as God is directing your thoughts. And so that's, that's a process, right? You never change the thing you act by changing your feelings, but what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to live our lives on the basis of our feet that affects your feelings, that affects the way that you live. And your body, well, ultimately, yes, your body is going, something's going to take you out of this world in your body, okay? Eventually, all of us will eventually die, all right? But the Bible says that when God now takes you're into heaven, and now flex it as it was spirit that's perfect because to be, and he'll resurrect that body and make it new, and he brings it together, the completion of salvation. Now you are in your perfected state of being. That's perfection. So how is you going to read the gap between what is ideal perfection and what is real in our lives? It's not about perfection. You know, you guys, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm, my response is, you're right. I am. Because I, you know what, I'm not all God wants me to be. You know, when I began my walk with Jesus, because my life was a mess, and there was so much brokenness, and I was trying to fix my brokenness with Jesus and putting them back together. You know, here's the ideal. Here's where Jesus has taken me ultimately, and I'm not there yet. I'm not even close. But from the day he started 40 years ago to where I am now, I am light. I don't always make progress every day. Some days I, you know, 10 steps back, and, and so you're right, I am. Sometimes I pretend to be who I am not. And so, by all of my needs, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are more than conquerors in Christ, and yet we live in fear, worry, real. So what happens to us? Well, when the real is not living up to the ideal, I feel shameful. You know what? I promise often I'm not ever going to do that again. God, I'll, I will put in safeguards. I will do whatever, whatever I can. Look, I'm telling you, Lord, I, I will never do that again. Eh. <laughs> How's that working for you? And so shame, um, yeah, you, you only have to go three chapters into Genesis to find distance. Shame always creates distance. Hey, uh, you don't understand. That was the old me, but this, this is the third time, uh, uh, and the old me's shown up, but the next time, the new me's going to show up. You, you just wait and see. Yeah, I know I've been through five jobs, but it's not, it's not me. It's not my fault I have, I've been fired five times. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, it, it was my boss. It was this. It was that. We have all the excuses, and, but next time, this new job, man, I'm starting Monday. It's, it's going to be different for me this time around. It, it's not going to be the same old Greg showing up. Really? And then shame gives way to distance and then dismissal. The ideal and the real, now we understand the gap that is there, but else to compare ourselves who has a worse gap than we do so that we don't feel so shameful anymore. Um, as we're going to look at in John 8, I am getting to the verse that we're going to tie in this last point live up to, right? And so they were the keepers of the law. 
they did everything they could. They said, you know, we keep all the laws. We keep it all the time. That's the ideal. And, and when Jesus came along and said, yeah, yeah, you're keeping this, this, and this, but you're failing to keep this, this, and this. And so all of a sudden, Jesus pointed out their gap between what they thought they were and what they were actually doing. And they didn't like it, did they? And it was at that moment in time they said, we got to get rid of this guy because he's pointing out the fact that our ideal and real are not matching up. And as a result of the shame that they felt over that, they created distance and, and, they, and they wanted to dismiss that by saying, well, you know what, Jesus, uh, at least we're not like those sinners that you're, you, you're having lunch with every day. At least we're not you know, hanging around with those kinds of people. And if we're not careful, we, the religious can look down upon those who are non-religious and condemn them for the very murder anybody, but you may hate somebody. And Jesus said, that's murder. You may never have actually committed adultery, but Jesus said, lust in your heart is like you have already committed the act of adultery. So when you read uh, God's standard for kingdom citizens called the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to notice that Jesus ratcheted up the ideal a lot higher than we could ever meet. And why, why is that? Because he was showing us, that, look, there is a huge gap between the ideal and the real. Don't be hypocritical. Just acknowledge it and let me work on it. That's called sanctification. That's called growing in your faith. That's called God transforming, transforming your life. And it's not, So Jesus gives us an example of this. And so here's the second point in this. People fail to, people, we got any perfect people in here? There are no perfect people here. And so many people, watch this, many people assume perfect in all your ways, right? They assume that. Are you a hypocrite? Guilty. Guilty. I'm not perfect. That, you, can, you can ask my wife. You can ask my kid. In fact, I don't know any of us who are, but we are trying to make progress, in this, you got to look at where people came from, right? So it, there's a difference between some of you grew up in church, right, all of your life. From the time you were a kid, you, well, you've got kind of a head start upon those who didn't grow up in church, right? And let's say they grew up in a drug-infested home or the fact that maybe they're, grow up, they're uh, in a Christian home. Like, I didn't have that. I, I, I didn't begin in a Christian home. I, I never darkened the door of a church except when I was 15 years old. So I always felt like I was behind, right? And so when God called me into ministry at age 20, and then their dads were pastors, and they grew up in Christian homes, and I'm like, now I'm so far behind. And so for me, you know, our, our second Sunday in, we come into the church doors and in the foyer, and there's, there's a, the deacons, they're there, and they're, they're greeting people, and, and we just come up and say, how the hell are you doing? And they're like, you know, it's like, what do we do with this? Uh, well, we're like, well, what did we do wrong? What? That was our everyday language. So they could have assumed, they could have just said, you know, you know if you're going to talk like that, where you get out of here, you're not allowed back in these doors. That's not the way they responded. Had they responded that way, I would have been one of those roaming around society saying, I tried church once, but they were a bunch of hypocrites. So here's what happens with Jesus, and a perfect picture of it right here in John 8. It says, Jesus went up around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Using all Moses' command trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground and was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now go, leave your life of sin. Well, certainly here's a woman who has a gap in her life. I don't know of any woman who grows up thinking, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be a porn star, or I want to be a prostitute, or I want to be an adulterer. Right? For whatever reasons, whatever decisions that transpired during the course of her lifetime, we find here's a woman who is caught in adultery. And I find it interesting because the Pharisees are the religious leaders uh, of whom Jesus didn't necessarily like. He hated the way they acted at times, especially when it came to pretending to be one way, only to, to be another way. And so this woman is really a pawn in their sex. They just wanted to Jesus. They were in the corner so that they have accusations that could be made against him to justify what it is they really wanted to do, and that was to get rid of him. Now think about this. How many calls in order to find this adulterous woman? Are they like peeping in windows? Are they sending text messages? And so it's, and in the text, it's like they drag her out of the bed. They drag her out, standing her in front of Jesus and saying, now look at this woman. She obviously needs to be condemned by God. She needs to be judged by God. The law of Moses says he's supposed to be brought forth also. They don't care about that. They only care about trying to entrap Jesus. Tender moment. And he stoops down and begins to write. What is he writing? Nobody knows what he's writing. Maybe he's writing their commands down in the, in the dirt. Who knows what he's writing? He straightens up. He stands up. He stoops down. He stands up and he says, Now you without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Now, uh, uh, if you're living out the ideal, cast the first stone. Otherwise... Those who dropped their stones in verse 9, it began with the older ones first. You want to know why it began with the older ones first? Because they had a great understanding. They knew they couldn't do it. You know, when I was young, um, ideal, you know, stand foolish. And I thought young. This. I had a, an opinion about everything. Again, I had an opinion about parenting until I had kids. And I had an opinion about being a pastor until I became a pastor. And I had a lot of opinions about a lot of things like, because I had this idea. But just with these guys, he says, you know what? If you actually uh, are without sin, if you actually... So the very, watch this. The very person who had the right to condemn this woman is the only one who didn't. Critics, judges and umpires when it comes to other people's lives. That is what we are not to do. I think there's some Pharisees who still struggle with us. No sooner do I conquer a bad habit than I become the biggest critic of those who still struggle with that habit. That's Phariseeism, in case you haven't noticed. Didn't catch on to that. So what is the point? What is the drive behind all of this? We oftentimes in the church are harsher judges than God himself. We tend to focus on what people have done wrong and what... See, anytime somebody gives me pushback about things, I just try to make it real simple. And the simplest way I...
And anything outside of that design, the Bible calls it sin. Sin always leads to brokenness, and brokenness always leads to coping mechanisms. So if people ask me, they want to push back about homosexuality, about uh, any kind of sexual sins. I just do what you sin, and sin always leads to brokenness, and brokenness always leads to coping mechanisms. And the answer to your brokenness is the gospel of Jesus. And so when people, let me tell you about how Jesus changed my life, how I was then, where I am now. I've not reached the ideal. I fall way short of that. But there is one. But here's what I want you to understand. You know, in my brokenness and in my coping mechanisms, I found out they weren't helping me. It's the best. And the best is found in truth. It's the truth that will set you free. And truth is Jesus. Amen. You try Jesus. You surrender to him. You let him take over your life, and you're going to find that God is going to help you make progress towards that ideal that you have in your heart, in your life, of what it is that you actually want to be and what you want to accomplish. I don't argue with people. Sometimes that's the way it is. So here is the church. Here's your fill-in. The church is a broken people. All throughout church history, God has used. Go back to broken pieces. Eve. Go back to Noah, who after the flood finds himself stretched out naked in his tent, drunk as a scum. So here's the, the final thought. The mess that brings us together is the mess that brings, it's a way through it. When Jesus said to this woman, now go and leave your life of sin. Grace, here's, we want to use the grace card in order to justify our sin. I hear people say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because, you know, I'm under grace. I'm under God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. It's all about God's grace. That's true. And you better hope, you know, you better, you know, thank God that you're under grace. But that is not a, that is not a means to substantiate your sin. I should always be striving to make progress in my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hypocrite? Yeah, maybe I don't live up to my ideal, but I'm working my way there. And this mess, it's what brings God near. For God so loved the messy world, that mess. He's the answer. He's our message. You and accuses you of being a hypocrite, what's going to be your answer? You see, if you ask people enough questions, their worldview begins to collapse around them. And they begin to think to themselves, hmm, I never thought of that. I never, I never heard it put that way. So don't be like the Pharisees who just want to condemn people. Because my question for you is, is the gospel also for rapists, for pedophiles, for human traffickers, for any other sin that you want to bring up? Absolutely. Condemn them. The law says they need to burn in hell. And I used to hear that as a teen responsible time. People, they just need to get there to their feet and say, look, say what you will of me. Here's all I know. This is what I was like. This is what Jesus did for me. Here's what I'm becoming. And that's what God wants for you. Let's bow our heads together. And Father, we thank you, um, Lord. (laughs) 